All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together again this morning. Thank you for your word. Open our hearts to it, to you, and make us better. Make us um, love you. Make us love your church as we study it together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, good morning. So we're moving in to chapter 3 in 1 Timothy. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy is one of those passages that are kind of famous. You know, it's a, it's a place that, that people think about and kind of stands out in, the, in 1 Timothy and in the New Testament because it talks about uh, the qualifications of church officers, right? And before we jump into that, I want to remind you of something. I've been saying that there are two things that we have to understand as we come to 1 Timothy. You remember what they are? Right? Number one, it's written in the context of bad teachers in the church. And so everything that he writes has that kind of in the background and is tuned to deal with that issue. And number two, the Apostle Paul is, is insistent that the church has to live in such a way so that when outsiders or unbelievers look in, they have no excuse to dishonor God. In other words, we don't give them any excuse to dishonor God. Now, they're going to dishonor God, but we don't want to give them any excuse to dishonor God, you know, because of what we have done. Okay, that, that is constantly in the, in the forefront, I think, of both of those things in the whole letter of First Timothy. And so, even this passage, you're going to see it that again and again as well. All right, so let's look at it. This is chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So he begins with this, verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Now, he, he introduces this, state, this section with this, this thing. It's a trustworthy statement. Um, the Apostle Paul uses that line like five times, all right? All in the, in the pastoral epistles. So 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And these all, he, he says it at like these key times throughout these letters. And he's, they all seem to be sayings or truisms or well-known quotes, right? Almost like Proverbs that the Christians knew and understood, all right? These are like handy, um, shorthand, kind of loaded statements that would immediately ring bells in the people's minds, or we have these, we have tons of these, right? 
don't, lo- don't look a gift horse in the mouth. You know? Uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, those kinds of little, they're kind of boiled down statements that when we hear them, we think of big, we th- kind of think of big thought. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> There's a bunch of weight that goes with that. And the trustworthy saying that he pulls out of the bag in this case is, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Now, (laughs) that seems kind of like a strange uh, truism, isn't it? You know? I mean, can you think of a a point where that's what you would say? (laughs) You know? Um, What it shows us is that these early Christians thought and talked a lot about the church, so much so that this was a, a truism. It's the kind of thing that when someone said it, everyone's like, yeah. You know, so you can picture the men of the church standing around after, after service, and you know, they're talking about their lives, they're talking about the life of the church. And at one point in the conversation, one old, you know, wise man says at just the right moment, well, you know what they say, brothers. If a man does, aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And everyone says, mm-hmm, ah, oh, yes, mm, yeah, that's right. That's what, it, that's what it means. So the early Christians thought about this stuff. They wrapped, their lives were really wrapped around the church so that even little sayings like this had to do with the church. And it's a true saying, saying. Now, let's look at the saying. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Notice he's talking about an office, right? It's the office of an overseer. That is an official position. Now, what does that tell us about the church, the early church? They had structure. They had order. They had hierarchy. Leadership in the church, the early church was not what we often think it was. The the early church was not a hippie, loose, you know, Woodstock festival kind of thing. Where it was just, oh yeah, man, whatever, oh yeah, man. It was order. Now what is the office of overseer? The Greek word translated overseer in this passage is episkopos, episkopos, right? In earlier times of church history, um, or pretty early on, uh, this is translated as what? Anyone know? Bishop. This is the word bishop. Over time, this office of overseer or bishop came to mean the man who had the oversight of several churches or over a whole region of churches, right? So that's what is meant by Episcopal church government. You've all heard of the term Episcopal. You know we have Episcopalians. Episcopalians are just Anglicans uh, after, the civil, after the Revolutionary War, right? When you're in the Revolutionary War and, and a whole lot of churches in America are called Anglican, what does Anglican mean? English. Okay. So you're not going to call them Anglican churches anymore. You're going to call them Episcopal. 
because that's the word. It's the word for bishop. And so the origin of the Episcopal Church has to do with, um, that has to do with a particular form of church government, just like Presbyterian Church has to do with a particular form of church government, right? Congregational church is a label that has to do with the government, the, the way that the church is governed. Episcopal has bishops. Presbyterian has presbyters or elders. And congregational is ruled by the congregation. Those, that's where those terms come from. But what does this word overseer or bishop mean? Is there a difference between an overseer and an elder and a pastor or a shepherd or a minister? Are there differences between those offices? Um, now we don't have, we're not going to take the time today to dig into all those distinctions. Uh, suffice it to say that we believe Scripture teaches that there are three basic offices in the church. You happy? Tim? Yeah, you. <laughs> who, who, me? There are three basic offices in the church. Um, one is minister of the word and sacrament. That's what we call pastor. We don't usually talk about minister of the word and sacrament. But that's pastor, shepherd, teacher, minister, okay? Elder or ruling elder and deacon. Uh, there is a significant overlap between the pastor or the minister of the word and sacraments Right? There's a significant overlap between the pastor, the work of the pastor, and the work of the elder. Significant overlap, but there are places that are, don't overlap as well. We'll get into more of that later in, in, in 1 Timothy. Um, the same basic character and qualifications are necessary for both offices, pastor and elder. And they both have ruling authority in the church. But there are also differences. The pastor, as the minister of the word and sacraments, has the special duty of preaching and administering the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So you'll notice the way that we practice things here, when we have the Lord's Supper, it's always a pastor who is um, administering it. You know what I'm saying? The one who's serving it. Now we have elders and deacons who help, but the one who's officiating at the table is always a pastor. The one who baptizes is always a pastor. The important thing to see here this morning is that when the Apostle Paul starts talking about overseers, he's not talking about what historically became known as bishops like in the Roman Catholic Church or in the Anglican or Episcopal Church. In other words, the, the apostles use three words pretty interchangeably all, all over the New Testament, overseer, elder, and to a lesser degree, pastor. They're used almost interchangeably. They're used interchangeably. So, for example, check this out. This is Acts 20. And remember, this is Acts 20. This is the Apostle Paul calling the elders of which church? Ephesus. Timothy is in Ephesus. All right, so there's overlap here even in, in these two accounts. So from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. That word elders is uh, the word where we, from where we get Presbyterian, presbyters, all right? That, that means elder. 
he called to him the elders of the church. And then verse 28, he says to them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word episkopos, bishop. Same word in 1 Timothy Timothy 3. And then he says to shepherd the church of God. That word shepherd is where we get the word pastor. So in that passage, he uses all three. He calls the elders, he says, God made you overseers, and as overseers, shepherd. All right, you see that? Titus, you see the same thing. Verse one, or chapter one. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer. You see how he's using these words interchangeably. The elder, the overseer. The elder, the overseer. There is no difference of office there. For the overseer must be above reproach and so on. So in 1 Timothy 3.1, the apostle Paul uses the term overseer, but he is talking about the qualifications of what we would normally call both pastors and elders. Look at what this trustworthy statement is here. It's a trustworthy saying, statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So what is the office of an overseer? What is the word he uses to describe it? What is it? Hmm? A work. It's a work. It's a good work. It's a fine work, it's a work. In other words, this is not an easy, easy, leisurely, side hobby kind of thing. It is a work. It is not a a cushy position for the educated nobility. It really is a work. It's what that word means. This is how the Bible always talks about this. Acts 15.38, Paul kept, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, that was Mark, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work, the work, not to the, the little uh, mission trip, you know, not on the vacation, but the work, not the hobby, the work, not the cushy job, but the work. 1 Corinthians 16. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. He's describing church officers here the work, labor. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. He's talking about the pastors and elders, isn't he? 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the, the who? The laborer is worthy of his wages. He's talking about pastors here. This is a work. It's a work. 
If you want to be an officer in the church, particularly here, an elder or a pastor, don't you dare think that this is an easy, cushy position for men with soft hands and weak spines. It's not for the softer sort. It really isn't. It's work. It's hard work. It's, it's very often crushing, exhausting work. Jody and I were standing in the office Friday, I think, and, and Robert came in. Robert? Everyone know Robert? Robert spent his life working. Right? Working. Um, and then he got a job where he, he was thinking as a, a draftsman, right? Is that what it was? And he said, man, you know, when you work, like dig ditches and stuff, you end up coming home, you don't have to think about it, you don't have to think about anything, either while you're doing it or after you do it, but your body's tired, you come home and you, you go to bed and you're thankful. But then when I changed my job and I was working as a draftsman, I had to think about it. I had to think about it all the time. I'm laying in bed dreaming at night about, you know, fixing the problem. And he said, this is the key thing he said, that kind of work is more exhausting than digging ditches. Isn't that what you said? Yeah. What's that? God taught you a lesson. Yeah. What was the lesson? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he thought the people who didn't do the kind of physical work he was used to doing didn't work. Well, the Bible calls this a work, and it is a work, if you take it seriously. And all the pastors and elders here can tell you, oh boy, it's a work. It's a good work. It's a fine work, he says. He says, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. It's a good work. It's good to want to do it. In fact, one of the, one of the qualifications for doing this work is what? Wanting to do it. Right? If you don't want to do it, you can't do it. You're not qualified if you don't, want, if you don't aspire to it. So that's one of the, even you could say, one of the qualifications. Now there's a sort of a caution here for us. All right, think about this. So you want to be an elder, you want to be a pastor. What are your motives for that? There are men here who rightly aspire to the office of overseer, right? What are your motives for that? What do you think it'll be like? What what do you have in your mind when you think, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. It'll be great, you know? Are you, the, are you like one of those wolfish elders in Ephesus who want to use the office as a platform to draw away disciples after themselves? I want to be an elder because then I get to know all the secrets and I get to have people, you know, look at me and think that I'm something. Do you want the respect and admiration of the church? Do you want to abuse the office so that you can have a cushy job and good pay with little effort. Is that the picture you have in your mind when you think of a pastor? Is this about you really just being lazy and vain and greedy? 
wanting to be a pastor or an elder is a good thing to want. It is a good thing to want. That's what the verse says. But you better have your eyes fully open to what it's really like, and you better be fully aware of the dangers. And we'll get into more of those dangers here in a minute. All right? Everybody with us? Now, so you aspire to the office of overseer. Okay. Well, here are the qualifications. Starting verse 2. He starts by saying that an overseer must be above reproach. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean perfect? It helps? (laughs) Yikes. Practically perfect. Practically perfect. Yeah. Does it mean sinless? No. So this is one of those weird, you know, what is he talking about? Be above reproach. Does that mean sinless? Does that mean perfect? Does that mean that in this list of things he's going to say that every man who is qualified for this office, you know, oh yeah, check, 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 check. You've seen these, um, these forms that, you know, sometimes we use when we're ta- thinking about men or we've handed out. I don't know if we've used these before. You know, where you have these, this list of qualifications, right? And rate yourself on a level of one to five. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm above. Rep- oh, yeah. I'm. T- oh, yeah. Check, 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 check. You know, is that? Number one, this isn't really about rating yourself. This is about the church looking at you. All right. The pastors, Timothy, it's about the church looking at you. Above reproach does not mean sinless or perfect. There are no such men. This means that an elder or a pastor must not be open to rightful attack or disgrace. Remember that thing, one of those first principles that we talked about? We can't have pastors and elders who, who give the world, unbelievers, good cause to dishonor God. That's what he's talking about. And so, yeah, of course, this, this means the overall pattern of his life is not scandalous. Not scandalous. So he is a godly Christian man, not a perfect Christian man, not a sinless perfect man, but a man whose life doesn't bring open shame on Christ and on the church. He's a man who, when the locals look at the list of elders and pastors on the church website, all right, the locals Look at the list of the pastors and elders on the church website. You know, he's browsing. You know, Trinity Reformed Church, huh? Elders. You know, (laughs) so this is not like that. So, uh, being above reproach really focuses on two areas. Personal self-discipline and maturity. Personal self-discipline and maturity. And the ability to relate well to others. 
to teach them, to take care of them. That's really the summary of all this list of qualifications. Personal self-control and maturity, the ability to relate to people and take care of them, love them, teach them. That's it. This is just outworkings of that, all right? And so what is the list? Well, okay, above reproach. That's kind of the the catch-all. Then he says the husband of one wife. Now that does not mean that every elder or pastor must be married. How do we know that? Because Paul wasn't married. All right? So it doesn't mean that every pastor or elder must be married, and it does not mean that he can't lawfully, he can't be lawfully remarried. That some churches and some traditions take that stance, that if a man has been remarried, even if he's lawfully remarried, that automatically excludes them from the office. That's not what this means. There are two lawful reasons for getting remarried. One is if you're a widower, or your wife has died, and you see that in Scripture, and the other is if you have a lawful divorce, and lawful divorce, right, comes under two categories of desertion and, and immorality. So if you're the innocent party, if the man is the innocent party in a, in a, in a divorce, he's able to get remarried. That's what Scripture teaches. And he's able to hold office. Now, if he's the, the offending party in the divorce, that's a different story, all right? So, can't mean, doesn't mean he can't be lawfully remarried. It most certainly does mean that if he's married, he can't be married to more than one woman. Here's an idea. And that was actually more common among the Jews of this time than the Greeks and the Gentiles. All right? And it certainly means that he must be a man who is sexually moral and faithful to his wife and to his marriage covenant. Now, is any man perfectly so? No. But there's a difference between thoughts and scandalous, you know. So the husband of one wife. Then he says temperate. Temperate. This means sober-minded, clear-headed, self-controlled, not rash or impetuous. And then he says prudent. That means wise or thoughtful, self-controlled and mature in the way you think. Respectable, he says. And that means orderly or modest. It means a a man who is worthy of respect. It's how a self-controlled, mature man behaves. He, He behaves in such a way that people look at him and say, you know, okay. You know, they don't spit their coffee over the keyboard when they see his name on the, on the church website. He's respectable. Hospitable. Husband and one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. Showing hospitality is a duty for all believers, right? First Peter 4.9, 4, be hospitable to one another without complaint. He says, he says that to all of us. And yet it's especially important in the life of a pastor or an elder. His home has to be open. He's not a recluse, you know? His hand is open with his time and with his stuff. And he's welcoming people into his home.
that has a lot to do with something else, doesn't it? What does that have to do with besides the man himself, his wife? Able to teach. <clears throat> think, of the bad, think of the situation in Ephesus. There are these bad elders who are teaching strange doctrine. And so these elders, the new elders, right, have to be, and pastors, must be skilled in teaching. Titus 1.9, he's dealing with some of the same kind of stuff in, 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 the, in the letter to Titus. And he says to Titus, here's how he puts this qualification. He says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's what he means here by able to teach. Holding the word in such a way that you can shut down false teachers and build up the people of God. As we'll see later in the letter, this, uh, this skill is especially needed in a pastor or a minister of the word and the sacraments. All right, so able to teach. Not addicted to wine. Not a drunkard. Not a man whose life is marked by drunkenness. Not a man who lacks the ability to control himself with wine. This is a real danger for, for elders and pastors to fall into. Why? Because of what Robert was talking about. Our work is heavy. Our brain won't shut down. <laughs> you know? Real danger, not allowed. No drunkenness. So he says, not, a, not addicted to wine or pugnacious. What does pugnacious mean? Is that a word you use? I think the old, I mean, not the Old Testament, <laughs> the King James, same difference. <laughs> the, King, the King James, uh, you know what the King James says here? No striker. You know, no striker. Not, not someone who's likely to, to, hit, to, to punch you in the nose when you're arguing, I don't know. Not, not pugnacious, not quarrelsome, not quick to fight, not short-tempered, not quick to anger. But, he says, gentle and peaceable. Obviously the opposite of pugnacious, right? In Titus 3, the Apostle Paul tells, says that all believers must be told this. So he's telling Titus what to tell believers. He says, tell them to malign no one. To malign someone is just to slander them, to say all kinds of nasty things about them. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Again, that's, that's, a, that's what we're all supposed to be like. So much more the, the pastor or the elder. An overseer can't have a chip on his shoulder, right? Just always, always ready just to... <clears throat> Here's what it says in uh, 2 Timothy the next letter that he writes, that Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, 
with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's what he means by not pugnacious, but peaceful, gentle. There's work to be done. They have to be shut down. They have to be silenced. But you have to do it like this. Free from the love of money is the next one. Free from the love of money. Hebrews 13.5 says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. This temptation to love money is common to all men, but it's especially dangerous for church leaders. A, why? Because a, a greedy teacher is a compromised teacher, always. Because he will, he will do what the Apostle Paul talks about later. He will itch people's ears. ears. He will tell them what they want to hear so that they'll keep paying him. All right, our country is filled with this. Again, in Titus, dealing with the same kind of issue, he says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, Jews, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. This is always the danger. I'm going to teach something that makes you happy and makes you want to give me money. False teachers are almost always motivated by one of three things. What are they? Money. Hmm? Power. And the one we don't want to say. Sex. Those three things. And that's why the Apostle Paul told those Ephesian elders back in Acts 20, remember? He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. What does it mean for a wolf not to spare the flock? What is the wolf doing to the flock? He's eating them. They are predators who use the sheep to feed themselves, to feed their appetites, to feed their ego, to feed their pride. That's what it means for savage wolves to come in and not spare the flock. All right, all this stuff in 1 Timothy 3 has all of that in mind. That's what we got to guard against. Now let's keep going. He says, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So a man's ability to lead and care for the church is tested and proven in his household. The, the church is the household of God. And if a man can't manage and take care of his own home, how can he manage and take care of the church? The home is the lesser thing. The church is the greater thing. If you can't do the lesser thing, how can you do the greater thing? And that ability to take care of the church 
is seen in how a man deals with his children. It says he must keep his children under control. What does that mean? I mean, this is not, this doesn't need a whole lot of explanation or translation. We know what it means. We know what it means when, when children are out of control. You know, they're just simply rebellious. They simply will not do what they're told to do. Or, this is a problem we have in our church. They're impetuous, not impetuous. Is that the word I want? Uh, what? Impertinent. Kind of goes with impetuous. Impertinent. Impertinent means... They regard themselves very highly. And when an adult tells them what to do or speaks to them, they regard the adult not very highly. I spoke to a young man the other day in the church. I don't know, fifth, sixth, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, something like that. And I was telling him not to do something, and he just. I'm over here telling, he's just not looking at me at all. <laughs> so I, then I had to talk to him about that. That's, we could talk more about that. We don't have time. Uh, he must keep his children under control with all dignity. Do you see that? Uh, keep his children under control with all dignity. Now, it's one thing to keep your children under control. That's hard enough. <laughs> but he says to do it with all dignity. So in other words, a father can, you can keep your children under control as a tyrant, as a manipulator, as a wheedler and a controller, right? Uh, either as a, uh, or as a, uh, please, would you all, oh, please? And neither of those have dignity. The overseer, he says, must keep his children under control and at the same time maintain his dignity, doing it. So the children who live in his home must honor him from some kind of internal restraint, not just external constraint, right? They want to honor him. And then he says and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must not only uh, be relationally mature, but he must also be spiritually mature. The word here is not a neophyte, not, not, a, little, a, not a little plant newly planted. That's what that word means, not newly planted, not a little green shoot. Little green shoots are fragile. Little green shoots are easily crushed. And so this isn't so much about age per se, but about how long he's had to grow, how long he's been growing as a Christian, not a new convert. He can't be a new convert because new converts, (laughs) what's the problem with new converts? You know what the problem is, huh? They don't know what? They don't know what they don't know, for one thing. 
In other words, they think very highly of their own judgments. I don't know, you think? Yeah. They think of themselves pretty highly, their knowledge, their abilities. They haven't, they haven't yet come to fail, to suffer, to be humbled by the remaining sins, to start to see their sins clearly. So they're proud. That's what he says. He says, not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited. New converts, if you take a new convert, a newly planted man, right, who's green, right, in that newly planted way, and put him in a position of authority, which is, this office is an office of authority, it's oversight. If you put that new man, that new convert, in an office of oversight, he will become conceited. David, do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David's saying that this this is it's weird because the word elder means old man, right? And yet, this uh, what he says later in the next chapter to Timothy is, "Let no one despise your youth." And so there is age, but there's also not just chronological age, but spiritual age, if you can put it that way. New convert put in the place of authority becomes conceited, puffed up. They think they're God's gift to the church. They think they know better than all their fathers. And then what happens to them? What does he say? They fall. They fall into the exact same condemnation that the, that the devil himself earned with his own pride. All right? And then, and he must, not have a repu- uh, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into t- reproach and the snare of the devil. That's the last one. This is another one of those big picture qualifications, just like the first one, which is above reproach. Above reproach, and he gives all these things, and he says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. In other words, this man is, must live in such a way that even unbelievers, even unbelievers are forced to look at him and admit, yeah, he's a good man. He's honest. He's hardworking. He's mature. He's not a drunkard. He's not greedy. He's not a hothead. He's not proud. His children honor him. What are they going to say? If they're going to attack the church, it has to be for a different reason than that. But what happens to a man who does not have a good reputation with those outside the church? What happens? He himself loses his credibility. The church loses its credibility. The gospel loses its credibility. And ultimately, Christ himself is slandered and blasphemed. That's what happens. That's why this is so important. It's it's about Christ. It's about the church. It's about the word of God not being dishonored. It's not about being clean machines for the sake of some kind of image. It's about the, the honor of God. And if he, this man has a bad reputation, then this disreputable elder falls into reproach 
and the snare of the devil. And he becomes calloused and indifferent to the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes a wolf. He becomes exactly what Timothy is having to deal with in Ephesus. Okay, now, one, one minute. I want to wrap this up and say this. Two dangers we can, we can two, two bad ways we can respond to this passage. One of them is to say, Psh, that's crazy. There's nobody like that. That's crazy. So just forget it. That was some kind of weird, what was he so uptight about? You know, let's just, psh, whatever. That guy's rich, make him an elder. <laughs> you know? That guy, you know, takes a shower on Sunday morning, make him an elder. <laughs> right? We don't want to do that. We want to take them seriously. This is the word of God. It's eternally true. This is, this is our instruction. What's the other ditch? One ditch is to say, to heck with that, that's too hard. The other ditch is to say, you know, the bar is so high that nobody can actually become an elder or a pastor. And when you do that, I mean, you got to have elders or pastors, so who are you going to get as elders and pastors then? If the bar is so high, who are you going to get? You're going to get people who are very good at acting like that. Does that make sense? So you don't want to you don't want to do either one of those things. You want to see you want to be honest. You want to see my sin as a pastor. You want to see the elders' sins and pastors' sins and make sober judgments about us and about any man who's aspiring to the office. Make sober judgments. Don't don't brush stuff under the rug. But don't have a standard that's so high that um, Paul couldn't have kept it. Let alone Timothy let alone me. Now, maybe I can't. And if that's the case, fire me. We got to honor this. We have to honor it. But not like legalists honor it. Does that make sense? Okay, got to be done. Let's pray. Father, would you please humble us and make us honor your word I pray for all of us who are elders or pastors, who are overseers, give us humility and uh, self-knowledge and repentance for our sins. For the sake of the honor of Christ, not for our reputation, but for Christ's reputation. And I pray that you would raise up more men like this uh, in, your, in this church and in all the churches all around the world. Please help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.